Well, some refer to the summer of 2015 as the time when the transgender movement truly went mainstream. That is the summer when Bruce Jenner, now known as Caitlyn, announced that he no longer identified as a man. Jenner has had hormone treatments and surgery to back up these claims and posed on the cover of Vogue magazine in makeup and a dress. And then later that year, Jenner won ESPN's Arthur Ashe Courage Award. Jenner was also named Glamour Magazine's Woman of the Year. But truthfully, the transgender movement goes back further than 2015. In 2007, Boston Children's Hospital became the first major program in the United States to focus on transgender children and adolescents. In 2011, the movie Becoming Chaz debuted on the Oprah Winfrey Network. It's the story of Chastity Bono, the daughter of Sonny and Cher, transitioning to a man at the age of 40. In 2014, a book dedicated to Jazz Jennings was released called I Am Jazz. Jazz was born a boy, but at the age of five began publicly identifying as a girl. The transgender movement has picked up steam ever since. We see it in debates about the use of public restrooms for transgender people, with stores like Target changing their policies in support of the movement. There are debates about which pronouns should be used when addressing a transgender person. There are arguments about Title IX applications and public education, a cover story on National Geographic, and debates about how transgender athletes can compete in sports. Just this past week, Christine Hallquist, a transgender woman, won the Democratic nomination for governor in the state of Vermont. It's safe to say that the transgender movement has come into its own, and it doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. Advocates consider this a wonderful example of progress. Meanwhile, opponents consider it a concerning and maybe even harmful trend. Meanwhile, many others, and maybe even most others, simply don't know what to think. But if you sit here this morning relatively clueless about the transgender movement, you won't be that way forever. Because whether you like it or not, you'll know enough about it soon enough. Whether it's through media, whether it's through politics, whether it's through education. So how does our Christian faith, and more specifically the Bible, help us think about this incredibly complex and sensitive topic? Does it help us at all think about this? That's what we're hoping to discover today. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we move forward, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people who have gathered to worship you. Father, I pray that our service here this morning, everything we do, the singing and the preaching and the praying, that all of it would build up these people and ultimately glorify you. Father, as we talk about complex and sensitive and controversial topics on Sunday mornings and how we as Christians can and perhaps should think about them, I pray that you would help us think and help us talk uh, with humility and wisdom. Father, help us be people of grace and truth uh, in a world that does not know you. Father, I pray that you would 
Give us wisdom and humility as we learn, as we read this morning. Help us be open to what your word has to say and help us come to peace with who you've created us to be. We love you. We thank you for Christ who died on the cross for our sins. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, first things first, we should define our terms. What exactly is the transgender movement to begin with? Well, a transgender person is someone with the physical body and biological makeup of one sex, male or female, yet identifies as the opposite sex, or maybe somewhere in between, or maybe neither one. Transgender activists may say a person was assigned one of the two sexes at birth, but that assignment ultimately proved to be incorrect. On the high end, some people estimate that one out of every 200 adults is transgender. Others say it's more like one out of every 20,000. It is a wide range, depending on who you're talking to. Thus, a transgender man is someone born a woman, but later comes to believe that they're actually a man. And likewise, a transgender woman is someone born a man, but later comes to believe they're actually a woman. In a BBC documentary on the movement, one young woman says this. It doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born in. It's what you feel that defines you. It's what you feel that defines you. Now, when I talk about transgender people or a transgender person, I don't use the words people and person lightly. Because it's incredibly important to remember that these are people we're talking about. And nothing less than that. Christians believe that all people are created in God's image. Thus, we should never reduce transgender people to anything less than a person created by God. They are no less created in God's image than I am or you are. Transgender people deserve to be treated like people with decency, kindness, not outcasts, not sideshows and not the butts of our jokes. Because they're created in God's image, just like you and I are, they have an inherent dignity that none of us should even attempt to take away from them. They deserve to be treated with respect the same way you and I do. But it's also true that transgender people are sinners, just like you and I are. They need God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, just like you and I do. They are guilty of rebellion against God the same way you and I are. And they deserve judgment, just like you and I do. So in that sense, all sinners are created equal. We're all in the same boat, even if our sins might look different than theirs. Now, another question that might come up is, why would someone be transgender? Again, to many of us, that just seems so foreign. It seems so hard to wrap your mind around. Well, as we discussed last week, we Christians should take mental health seriously. In the case of the transgender movement, many transgender people are suffering from a mental health issue called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a deep-seated feeling, a deep-seated conviction that you inhabit the wrong physical body. You might look like a man... You might have all the natural, normal, functioning parts of a male body. But that's not who you really are. You aren't a man. You're a woman trapped in a man's body, or vice versa. 
As the young woman in the documentary said, your body is just a meat skeleton. Really, it's a liability holding you back from being who you really are. That's gender dysphoria. But then in addition to taking mental health seriously, we as Christians take the problem of sin seriously. We believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We believe that we live in a thoroughly fallen world in desperate need of redemption. So should we say that a transgender person is guilty of sin? Or should we say that they're a victim of gender dysphoria? Well, perhaps both can be true at the same time. But what's the big sticking point with this movement? Why are we even talking about this? What is it so what makes it so controversial? Well, we should acknowledge the existence of transgender people and we should recognize the reality of gender dysphoria. But the sticking point is how to respond, how to respond to these feelings, how to respond to this deep seated conviction. Should a transgender person force their body into alignment with their mind? By getting puberty blocking drugs or taking hormone injections or having surgery to make them look more like their desired sex. Or should a transgender person seek to get their mind more in alignment with their physical body. Now we should give both sides of the debate the benefit of the doubt. I know that seems like a foreign concept. It seems like a lost art. But we should assume that those who we disagree with actually do have good intentions, even if we disagree with their logic. We should assume that both groups have genuine compassion for transgender people and a genuine desire to see them flourish. We should assume that both groups care about right and wrong. Both groups care about truth and error. We should assume that neither side wants to see transgender people suffer more mental, emotional, or physical distress than they may have already suffered. And we should all mourn the tragically high suicide rates for transgender people and do everything we reasonably can to reduce those numbers. But again, how do we respond? Option number one can be summed up as manipulating the physical body into alignment with the mind. That is the dominant stance of our secular culture. Option number two would be seeking to bring the mind into alignment with the physical body. And that should be the dominant response. That should be the dominant priority for Christians. Now, why should that be our response? Why do we say that? Remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago. We discussed our theology of the body, examining what scripture says about the physical bodies God has given us. And we came to the conclusion that while our bodies are subject to sin and decay and eventually death, That doesn't change the fact that our bodies are a good gift from God. Our bodies are to be cared for as the precious gift from God that they are. They're to be used for his glory. Our bodies are not just a prison to escape from, something holding us back from who we really are. They're not just a meat skeleton to be manipulated or engineered into accordance with our desires. But then every good Christian should always ask, does the Bible back this up? Does the Bible back up the stance that I'm taking? Well, we should admit that scripture isn't as clear cut on this issue as some would like you to think. It's not nearly as clear cut on this as it is on homosexual practice, for example. 
So we shouldn't pretend the Bible addresses something clearly and explicitly when it actually doesn't. God does not need us to lie for him. God does not need us to exaggerate or shore up the revelation that he's given us because it didn't go far enough. Scripture is perfectly capable and perfectly sufficient for addressing the questions of our day and age without us trying to help it out. The truth is that this simply wasn't on the ancient world's radar. And so scripture doesn't address it explicitly. But that doesn't mean that scripture is completely silent. Scripture still gives us good principles and an overarching worldview, an overarching understanding of creation, an understanding of humanity, an understanding of nature that is relevant to this topic. So as we start in Scripture, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. If you think we read these verses a lot, it's because we do, because they're really important. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, God makes humanity as male and female. That's it. Now, that verse is certainly worth mentioning, but it's not the final say. When addressing something that is this complex and this sensitive, we can't just read two verses and then dust off our hands and say, well, that settles it. We won the debate. It's not that easy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. Maybe we can dig a little bit deeper. We read there. A woman shall not wear a man's garments. Nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now that seems to be a bit more relevant. In the sense that it explicitly addresses a member of one sex attempting to present themselves as the opposite sex. But again, does this really address the deeper nuances of the transgender movement? Does it take the reality of gender dysphoria into account? And even if it does, is that a law from Deuteronomy that we carry over as believers in Christ today? Well, the answer is this text isn't enough either. A man wearing a woman's clothes or a woman wearing a man's clothes is not the same thing as a deep-seated conviction that you were born into the wrong body. So Deuteronomy isn't enough either. But let's look to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. We read a couple of these verses two weeks ago. Paul says there, quoting his opponents, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This passage really gives us something to work with. Paul is speaking to Corinthian believers who believe that they're just so spiritual, they're just so enlightened in their minds that it doesn't matter what they do with their bodies. Who cares what they do with their bodies? And Paul says, no, 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 no. That is not how this works. He specifically refers back to the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. He affirms the male-female distinction. And then he specifically addresses the significance of our physical bodies. And verse 19 is what I really want you to soak in. That's where Paul says, you are not your own. You are not your own. Now, it's true that Paul is specifically talking to believers in Christ in this passage. He's talking to people who possess the Holy Spirit. But that statement, you are not your own, that is true of every single person in existence. It extends far beyond just Christians. God cares what we do with our bodies. And God has a say in what we do with our bodies. Because God gave our bodies to us. And so even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't believe in Jesus, and even if you don't possess the Holy Spirit, it doesn't change the fact that you were created by God. As we mentioned earlier, that comes with an unassailable dignity. But it also comes with a great responsibility. Whether you like it or not, you, by default, owe God your worship, your obedience, your body, your mind, and your whole life on his terms. As Paul says, you are not your own. Nancy Piercy says this, Our view of the body depends on our view of nature. Do we see nature as essentially good, a gift from the Creator to be accepted with gratitude? Or do we see nature as a set of negative limitations to be controlled and conquered? Christians view nature and view our bodies as essentially good, a gift from the Creator to be accepted with gratitude. But many people in our day and age and many people in our culture, they view nature and they view our bodies as negative limitations to be controlled and conquered. How you answer that question greatly shapes how you respond to the transgender movement. Now, earlier we mentioned that gender dysphoria is a very real mental health issue. And understanding that is crucial to understanding the transgender movement itself. Many medical experts argue that treating gender dysphoria with puberty blockers or hormone injections or surgery is the best course of action. 
But there are also plenty who disagree. Paul McHugh, one of the most famous doctors at Johns Hopkins, one of the most reputable hospitals in the world, has studied this issue for decades. And McHugh says this, referring to people who had surgery and treatments and then went on with life. McHugh says, They had much the same problems with relationships, work, and emotions as before. The hope that they would now emerge from their emotional difficulties to flourish psychologically had not been fulfilled. McHugh ultimately came to the conclusion that sex change surgery and bad medicine was fundamentally cooperating with a mental illness. He said, we should try to fix their minds, not their bodies. He then adds, we have wasted scientific and technical resources and damaged our professional credibility by collaborating with a mental health issue rather than trying to study, cure, and ultimately prevent it. There are more people out there like Paul McHugh saying what he's saying. Likewise, there are people out there who have transitioned to the opposite sex that they weren't born into and then come to greatly regret it. Their voices and their stories should be heard the same way everybody else's should be. But then in addition to the mental and physical health side of things, we should talk about the cultural forces at work within the transgender movement. Again, we live in a fallen world. And it's only in a fallen world that a movement like this can come about and subsequently be reinforced and celebrated. Martin Luther once said that sin is humans curved in on themselves and away from God. Humans curved in on themselves and away from God. Humanity's worship of independence, autonomy, self-expression, individualism, and control at the expense of everything else, that idolatry has run wild, especially within our society. It's run so wild that we've come to believe that only we, not our nation, not our families, not God, and not even our physical bodies can define who we are. And that is a bald-faced act of defiance against the God who created us and to whom we will one day have to answer. But again, this worship of control and independence and autonomy, it's not anything new. We see it in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 4. This is the conversation between Satan and Eve. Satan has attempted twice now to tempt Eve, and both attempts have failed. But then we see this in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's not really true. That's not why she ate. Every other tree in the garden was good for food, too. When she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, also not true. All the other trees were a delight to the eyes as well. That's not why she ate. And when she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's why she ate. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Satan promised Adam and Eve that their eyes would be opened. They'd be like God. They'd know good and evil. In other words, Satan promised that they would be their own gods. They would be in charge. They'd be the master of their destinies, the captains of their souls. They'd get to define themselves on their terms, and they would no longer have to answer to anybody but themselves. But then when Adam and Eve eat, when their eyes are opened, they don't like what they see. They cover themselves. They hide from God. And they quickly discover that all the liberation and all the freedom that Satan promised them was actually a death sentence. Now, to those who suffer from gender dysphoria, our culture is making very similar promises. Take the hormones. Have the surgery. Buy the clothes. Change your birth certificate. Determine your own identity. Eat the fruit. Then your eyes will be opened. You'll be the true judge of what's good and evil. You'll decide who you are and who you're not. No one else. You will be your own God. But buying into this will not eliminate the loneliness, the discontentment, the shame, and the confusion that you feel. Turn instead to the God who knows you better than you know yourself. You are not a mistake. You are a work of his hands. He made you. He loves you. He knows what is best for you. And no one but him can provide the identity and the purpose and the contentment that you seek. Stop trying to recreate yourself in your own image. And embrace the fact that you've been created in God's image. With all the dignity and all the responsibility that comes along with it. That's why I, as a Christian, disagree with our culture's response to the transgender movement. I believe that a person struggling with this is best served by seeking help to align their mind with the reality of their physical body and not the other way around. I would tell that person that their body is not their enemy. It is a gift of God. But I'd also tell them that you are not the master of your own destiny. You are a work of God's hands. So care for your body. Steward it for God's glory rather than manipulating it to your own desires. Give God the worship and the obedience that he deserves as the person he created you to be. Only then will you find the joy and the rest that you're seeking by acknowledging and embracing the truth that you are not your own. Augustine once wrote, God has formed us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in him. That is true of every single sinner, and it's also true of transgender people. As we close, a few words of practical guidance to the people in this room. I assume most of us, if not all of us, are Christians, and most of us, if not all of us, do not struggle with this. But a few words of practical guidance. Number one, listen to transgender people. Listen to them. Listen to them as the people that they are. People with stories and hopes and dreams and plans. People with joys and sorrows and victories and defeats. It's much easier to treat these people with grace 
And recognize the God-given dignity they possess when you look them in the eye and remember that God created them too. That's suggestion number one. Suggestion number two is to love your neighbor. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, or how their lifestyle choices rub up against yours. That includes how you treat them, but it also includes how you speak about them when they're not around. Now, love doesn't mean that we condone actions we believe to be sinful. Love does not mean that we affirm or celebrate as true things that we believe to be false. But Jesus' word about loving our neighbors is not an option. It is a commandment, no matter who our neighbor is. Another piece of guidance is to remember your own sin. While we may see logs and specks in our neighbor's eye, it's important that we don't overlook the logs and the specks in our own eyes. As we said earlier, we're all in the same sinful boat. And a transgender person doesn't need God's grace any more than you or I do. Another piece of guidance would be to avoid overly rigid gender stereotypes. Perhaps one reason a person may be attracted to the transgender movement is that they've been told their whole life that they can't possibly be a boy or they can't possibly be a girl just because they don't like or do all the traditional boy or girl things. Thus, they come to assume that the only solution, the only thing that makes sense is that they're really not a boy or they're really not a girl. But not every girl is going to be petite and dainty. And not every boy is going to be stereotypically macho. And that's okay. It doesn't mean they're not what their body says they are. It doesn't mean they're not a boy or a girl. On top of that, share Christ. As we know all too well, there are people in our world desperately searching for some kind, any kind, of deep, meaningful identity. Some kind of deep, meaningful sense of belonging will point them to Christ. He's the only person who can give us a new identity. He's the only person who can give us a place to belong that's of value both in this life and the next. And then finally, be ready. Be ready. Eventually the time will come. Where some transgender people will come to you realizing that something is still missing. Realizing that our culture's promises didn't actually deliver. So be ready to welcome them. Be ready to love them and care for them and teach them and shepherd those lost and hurting people. Don't burn the bridge by bullying or marginalizing or failing to recognize the dignity of people created in God's image, even if they're looking for love in all the wrong places right now. Be ready. Now, what about bathrooms? And what about pronouns? And what about education? And what about sports? What about intersex people? That being a physical issue, not a psychological issue. Well, we can't talk about everything. I'd be happy to talk after the service, but then I'd also like to make a few recommendations. These are books that I found very helpful in preparing for the sermon, and I hope could be helpful for you as well. The first is by Ryan T. Anderson. It's called When Harry Became Sally. If I'm being honest, I don't like the title. I think it's unnecessarily offensive. I think it's making light of the transgender movement by referring to a romantic comedy. I don't like the title, but the content is very, very helpful. 
Another book is by Nancy Piercy. I quoted her earlier. The book is called Love Thy Body. I would highly encourage you to read that for some good theology and philosophy even behind our bodies. And then thirdly, I'd recommend Andrew T. Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate. It's a good book for some practical guidance about how we as Christians can be more Christ-like to transgender people. And then I'd close by saying that there is room at the cross for transgender people. In fact, they'll fit right in. Because as Paul says in Romans 8.23, every single person at the cross is eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies when Christ returns. So even if your sins look different than mine, and even if your issues are a little more visible than mine, and even if the church appears to obsess over how horrible your sins are while conveniently turning a blind eye to mine, just know that there is room at the cross for both of us. In Reinhold Neighbors' serenity prayer, he says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We pray that same prayer this morning. Ultimately, we can't change our sex. We can change our appearance. We can change lots of things. But we can't change our chromosomes. But God can change our identity. God can transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God can make sinners saints. He can make enemies friends. He can make orphans children. And it's all thanks to Christ. And there is room at his cross for all of us. So if your current identity leaves something to be desired, if you feel like something is missing, you're right. But there's a new identity sitting at the cross, sitting there with your name on it. And I pray that you would believe that this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Father, again, even though your word doesn't speak clearly and explicitly to every single question that we have and every single struggle that we wrestle with and every single event in our daily lives, thank you that your word does dispense wisdom, that you do give us overarching worldviews that help us shape who we are and who you are and how our world works. Father, I pray that we as Christians in this room that we would conduct ourselves with humility and kindness and respect. Just because we believe we have the truth doesn't mean that we have the right to be arrogant about it. Doesn't give us the right to be rude about it. Doesn't give us the right to be jerks about it. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't do that. I pray that we would have the boldness and the courage to carry your truth into every sphere of life that you put us in. But again, that our love and our kindness and our humility would shine so brightly that people wouldn't dare say that we're bigots. That people wouldn't dare say that we hate someone because our love would make that accusation ridiculous. And Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room who ultimately struggle with the same challenge of what do we find our identity in and What do we value and what makes us unique and what makes us who we are? I pray that every single one of us would turn to your son, Jesus Christ, for that answer. 
Whether it's confusion about our sex, whether it's confusion about relationships, whether it's confusion about careers or anything else, that we would find our identity in your son, Jesus Christ, above all else. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. Help us conduct ourselves with grace and truth in a world that so greatly needs both. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.